Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. It has been an interesting week on the local political scene, specifically for the provincial local political scene. Uh, Sarah Jama, the MPP for Hamilton Centre, has been at the centre of a lot of controversy, not the first time, for her comments or non-comments or what she said or didn't say about what happened in Israel on the weekend. Uh, She put out a statement that clearly uh, talked about the Israeli apartheid and didn't really talk about much in the way of, well, none in the way of denouncing Hamas or the terror attacks. It was a statement that even had her own party leader, Merritt Stiles, demanding she take it down. It got Doug Ford, the premier, demanding she resign. Uh, none of that has happened. I want to bring in John Best. He is the publisher of the Bay Observer. Uh, John, I, I, I can't say I was entirely surprised that if a local politician was going to find their way into the middle of a mess like this about this topic based on past things, that it would be this one. No, uh, Sarah Jama got elected in March. We're now into October, and I, you know, if we count the uh, the retraction that she, well, I, the apology that she made on the eve of the election, the by election, uh, then there was an episode a couple of months after she got elected where she had to clarify her remarks, and and now this latest position. I mean, I. I you know, this is what you get when uh, you uh, don't really screen people properly. And, you, you know, in the case of uh, Sarah Jama, her history was all over social media before she got elected. They uh, they did a furious scrubbing of her social media accounts uh, once it broke just before the election. And she, she managed to, well, not managed to win. She won rather handily because she... Uh, really didn't have uh, strong opposition. But, uh, you know, I think the public has to accept the fact that she she is an activist uh, when it comes to the Palestine question. And uh, these these things are going to keep popping up, I suspect, over uh, the rest of her term. How, though? OK, so, John, it, I mean, you're the boss of the Bay Observer. So let, let's put it a different way. I was going to say, I know what would happen if I did this to my boss. If my boss told me to take something down off my social media because it did not represent my paper or the radio station. If you told one of your employees, take it down, it is not reflecting what we stand for. And that person refused to do it. I know what would happen to me. And I'm guessing, you know, what would happen to your employee? How is Sarah Jama still employed? This to me looks like Merritt Stiles has been entirely neutered as a political leader. This is a major political setback for Styles, and you know she was on a bit of a roll because she had been really going after Ford on the uh, Greenbelt issue, and uh, I think she'd been making some progress. But this is a problem for the Ontario NDP in particular. They've they've had to deal with these anti-Semitic allegations in the past. Uh, they they just can't seem to shake this thing. I think there is a radical element within that caucus that uh, is very much anti-Israel. And um, unfortunately, uh, it doesn't seem to be something that can be controlled. Uh, you know, to my mind, uh, in the case of Hamilton Center, uh, Stiles really lost the uh, argument right at the beginning because I, I think, you know, in the past, we've seen elections where something like this blew up and the candidate was asked to step aside. 
And yes, that probably might have cost the NDP that seat, but uh, it really wouldn't have made much difference at all in terms of uh, their standing in the Ontario legislature. Doug Ford already had a clear majority. So whether you got 22 seats or 23, there was a principle and, uh, you know, Merritt Stiles failed then. And I think she failed yesterday when she wasn't more assertive on uh, on dealing with this member. If, well, if and the irony, John, the irony of this is that I really believe that you could run a whittled down pencil stub in Hamilton Central. If it's painted orange, it's going to win. It's not like Sarah Jama was the only person who could have won. Anyone under the NDP umbrella was going to win that seat. It was a, it was a, a vote as safe an NDP seat as you could get. I mean, the, the former provincial party leader had just stepped down. Uh, they have uh, citywide organization. It's not just the writing. Uh, you know, they can pull in resources from right across the city. And Hamilton having a heavy union population, uh, including the QP union at McMaster, uh, there, there was not going to be an issue about them holding the seat. But they, they didn't vet this candidate, and uh, or if they did vet her and just thought, well, let's we can get away with it because, uh, you know, maybe they, they just thought that uh, at the end of the day, why get into a, a, a race? She had declared months in advance that she was going after the seat, and they were probably worried about the optics of, uh, you know, putting somebody else up against her. Whatever the case, Styles does not look good, and she didn't look good then. She doesn't look good now, and it it uh, really calls into question what kind of a grip she has on this uh, caucus of hers. Let's talk about one more thing that you just mentioned. You mentioned Cupy. This another local issue, the McMaster Cupy branch, uh, all kind the leader of Cupy in uh, just a hellfire of controversy here about this very thing as well what we've seen i think over the last few days is a really interesting exposing of something and it seems like an awful lot of progressives or those on the left who are the the the, the people who scream the loudest for rights or for victims or for whatever, uh, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of sympathy for the victims of Israel. This has been, I, I think this has really exposed what's going on behind the scenes in a lot of these places. Yeah, it has. Uh, it, it's hard to put a, I, I would not want to put a label on it right now, but clearly uh, among, uh, clearly the, the we've seen among progressives that there is a high degree of skepticism towards Israel. And, you know, and, and the other thing, Scott, uh, I was watching... And not uh, just in Hamilton, by the way. This is all over the place. This is everywhere. Oh, exactly. I mean, I was watching uh, Anthony Blinken uh, with Netanyahu on TV this morning. And, and at the podium that they're sharing, I mean, Blinken raises the issue of a separate Palestinian state. That's, that's American policy that uh, eventually there, there should be uh, independence for a, a Palestine state. He said that with Netanyahu standing right beside him, uh, you know, there there is a time to have that discussion about uh, the humanitarian crisis in, in Palestine. Clearly, that's not a sustainable situation. It, it makes me think of Ireland, uh, you know, that we went through for many, many years. But you can't have that discussion, I'm afraid, uh, three days after we've seen what we've seen on, on television with... Uh, people being massacred, a bunch of kids at a dance being slaughtered, 
people being dragged away. I think there's something like 150 hostages. There's a time and a place for everything. And having that broader discussion about the Palestine question just is not going to work uh, four or five days after what we've seen. John, it, it, to me, it doesn't seem all that confusing. You, it, It's a legitimate position people can hold to say, I want a liberated Palestine. But a statement that could have come out that said, even in the wake of this, from anybody, we support a liberated Palestine. We want Palestinians to be free. However, we cannot support this and a Hamas terror act and innocent civilians being butchered as the way to do it. You've then made your point and you've also shown humanity it's not that complicated is it no and i i re i reposted a tweet uh, over the weekend from from a palestinian individual who made that exact point that uh, she made the point that you think people in palestine like hamas you you have a government there but then you have hamas and hamas is running the show and and she said people in palestine hate hamas because it's brought all this horrible uh you know missiles and uh it's brought all this destruction down on them so you know i it's it's just a it's a highly complicated issue and i uh, think some is. of some of these uh you know uh champagne socialists who want to you know talk about it from the sidelines here in canada uh really you know they do us all a disservice when when the conversation is taken up with this that is John Best. He is the publisher of the Bay Observer. I always love having you on, John. Thanks for this. My pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Boy, there are some projects that are on the books that we are looking at to uh, see built in Hamilton over the next little while. There are some giant condo developments. Uh, we know about the rejuvenation of First Ontario Centre. None, though, I don't think come within 100 miles of what is planned right now for Stelco lands. The, the, the redevelopment plan on an 800-acre parcel of land down there is, is pretty mind-blowing. Uh, Steve de Junkere, did I get that right, Stephen? Yeah, you got it, Scott. That's, All right, that's senior, great. <laughs> senior Vice President of Development with Slate Management, uh, that's the company behind it, joins me. This is, um, I don't remember, honestly, a bigger project in this city recently. It's its an enormous undertaking you're taking on here. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, would, I would say, yeah, I can't think of a larger project either in recent times, um, other maybe the buildup of all of these areas over the past century, but uh, certainly, and, and uh, it's... Um, the scale is sometimes one of the hardest things to understand. And, and I've been looking at this for two years and um, still find myself a little little in awe every time I'm standing on the site looking around. So uh, we're, we're very excited and, uh, and honored to be, be working on this. I read somewhere the comparison was this is essentially the same size, give or take, as Central Park. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, so Central Park, I mean, obviously there's buildings around Central Park, but most of what's on that land is green space. Yours is a lot more complicated. It's not just planting trees. Tell us, give the sort of the rundown for people who haven't heard about this, haven't seen the pictures, the general concept of what this is. Is this residential? Is this commercial? Is this parkland? What is it? No, no, it is, um, it is absolutely commercial. Uh, we, we like to refer to it as a manufacturing and logistics campus, um, and but there will be interwoven throughout that a, 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 um, a pretty comprehensive public realm. 
Um, you know, I think we recognize that this is going to be a future employment center for thousands of people, hopefully tens of thousands of people. Um, and so we want to make sure that this is an attractive place and a place that not just the future occupants, but the entire city of Hamilton can be proud of. So, so again, I, I think it's very much in a, a, a manufacturing and logistics campus, but interwoven with a, a, a very sophisticated public realm. There's obviously a few things and, and people can go look at the pictures and go online. The spec.com has, has a bunch of them. I'm sure you can find them elsewhere. But um, the first thing that came to mind when I saw this was be after the scale and the, wow, this is a huge project. What about the cleanliness of the area? And I mean, just as far as this has been a heavy industrial area for a while, is this land, can you build upon this land or is it dangerous? Chris Scott, you know, I think that's, one of the most frequently asked questions and and I think maybe one of the most frequent misconceptions of the site as well. Okay. I mean, th there's certainly contamination on the site. Like this has been an industrial site for over a hundred years um, with heavy manufacturing. Uh, but there's a number of things that I think need to be considered. One, the type of operations both here and, and with our neighbors at AMD is changing dramatically. They're modernizing, they're bringing in new technologies and a lot of investment to do that. And, and the real goal of that investment is to reduce um, the carbon footprint of producing steel. And, and part of what that means is, is that whole landscape is going to change. The glass furnace, the coke batteries, the burning of the coal that everybody sees is front and center now. All of that's going to be gone over the course of the next decade. So I think that's the first thing that, to really recognize. And then I think the second thing is, um, you know, there's certainly the ground is impacted. But it, it's not to such levels of contamination that it really, in most cases, proposes any 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 um, danger to human health. Uh, there are a couple of hot spots, as we call them, that are you know the sites of some historic activities that have some elevated contaminants. Those will be actively remediated. Um, but I think everything else actually is is quite manageable as is. Um, there will be some provisions put in place for future development, um, but it really isn't isn't as onerous as people anticipate it to be. Based on what I'm reading and based on the artist's conceptions and everything going with it, it appears that you'll be building around the Stelco plant. So this is not about raising the whole thing and starting over. This is going to be building essentially, as I understand it, a neighborhood around what exists now, obviously looking different. But am I, again, correct? Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. So um you know, one of the things to recognize is Stelco is actually, they've already demolished a lot of their older facilities that were no longer part of their process. Um, and uh, and there's a few more uh, few more buildings that are operating currently, including the Coke battery in particular, that um, you know will be decommissioned in the next several years also. Um, but outside of that, you know, I think it's building around some of the steel industrial and heavy industrial uses that are there uh, in in finding ways to bring the community that's further to the south back into the site and up to the waterfront well and that is certainly there is such history of this city with that and whether people look at the steel mills as beautiful and impactful on the growth of the city or whether they look at them as dirty and disgusting and let's clear them off the skyline is up for interpretation but i think there is a real argument to say keeping some of these even the shells or working with them appeals to the history of this town Absolutely. You know, I think, and, and again, as, as you noted, our plan does propose some of that. Now, those are, you know, complex things to figure out how to preserve and, and open those up to the public. But I think that's what we want to partner with the city and or other organizations on. And I, I think if you look at other precedents around the world, North America and Europe, 
Um, we've got a lot of uh, comparable steel cities that have reinvented themselves. And I think a number of them have great examples of how they preserve blast furnace or coke batteries and turn them into public spaces. And they're absolutely unique. You're right about that. And and once they're gone, there's no rebuilding them, right? So um, we are excited about finding ways to uh, to retain some of those components and and keep them there as, as a u- unique part of the history of the site. Uh, let me play cynic for just one second. Um, sure. We have seen in this city and probably other places as well, many times artists conceptions of what a new project is going to look like and then when the project finally either gets started or gets finished we look and go oh that didn't look anywhere close to what they showed us at the beginning kind of disappointing how close do you anticipate these drawings and these images not exactly obviously but how close do you think that they will be to what eventually is there well, this is this is a ten plus year project, so absolutely things will evolve. But you know, I, I think part of the renderings, part of what we're showing when you look at some of the waterfront, when you look at some of the the, the potential public spaces, if you walk to the edge of the site, those are already there. It's just about unlocking them. So I, I do think, um, you know, I think a lot of those opportunities will be developed as they're kind of envisioned. Um, so I, I do think that there's going to be something very aspirational and interesting, even if it does evolve for the general public. Uh, and I think the second that I, thing that I'll say is, is at Slate in general, um, you know, we do have, we feel that we have a commitment to good design. If you look at some of our other residential projects and commercial projects, it's always been kind of a cornerstone of our concept. We believe good, good design is good business. And again, recognizing that this concept will certainly evolve. Um, you know, I, I think it's our objective to adhere to sort of the highest design quality standards. And, and um, that's what will make this a successful park. This won't be just one building that we're building. It's it's a, a, a long path of multiple buildings, structures and components of the development. So I'm confident that we'll, we'll, be, be, we'll be able to deliver something aspirational that, that it meets the quality of what you're seeing in sort of the, uh, the vision that we're proposing now. If it if it comes close, I got to tell you, looking at these pictures, uh, it is uh, it is exciting to think of what could be down there. It's uh, I guess we'll see, but it's uh, the aspirational, great word, uh, exciting, hopeful, um, all those things. Uh, Stephen Deonkere uh, with Slate Asset Management. Really appreciate you taking time today. Thanks for doing this. Happy to do it, Scott. Always a pleasure to talk about the project, and uh, hopefully there'll be many more opportunities to do so. I am sure there will be. We'll talk again soon. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks, Scott. Bye. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Tomorrow night, 7 o'clock kickoff, 6 o'clock pregame show. Your Hamilton Ticats play at home against the BC Lions. Very good opponent. Uh, BC still with something to play for. But I, it hadn't even dawned on me until a few hours ago when it was pointed out this is going to be Bo Levi Mitchell's home debut for the Ticats, which I find... I don't know why I find that so surprising. I mean, I know he's been injured and stuff, but I thought surely he'd play it at home. Nope, never did. Uh, Bubba O'Neill from CHCH joins us. Did you? Did you? When did you realize that that this was finally going to be his debut at home? Yeah, I just I kind of knew it all along. I just you know, obviously you know, being um, you know doing the uh, pre and post and, and halftime show, just kind of it was something in mind, and, and and I kept thinking, you know, what a what a burn that is, and that really the Ticat fans and. Town football fans only got to see him, you know, play a quarter in a preseason game, which was obviously very sure. meaningless. But yeah, his games were all on the road in Toronto and Winnipeg and Ottawa. So yeah, I think this is a this is this is great, um, especially you know in the where we are at the season right now with the team playing so well. 
they are playing so much better than they were, and I think fans of the team should have some real optimism that they are getting it together at the right time. What did you see from Bolivar Mitchell last game? Did you see enough to say, yeah, let him loose and let him play the game, or are you still going to be really cautious with him if you have that call? Well, I, I think the Tiger Cats and you know, and their their training staff, and of course, Bull himself, and you know, being honest with himself. I don't think if if he wasn't healthy, they wouldn't be putting him out there. He's just too much of an investment and and too valuable a player. Um, so I, I I think he's healthy now. You know, load management has become a big word in the sports industry right now, and you know, ramping him up for you know arguably the playoffs. I think that's probably mindset number one for the team. But I, I feel like he's healthy, and I was very impressed with the way he was slinging the football. Um, in, in that first quarter in Saskatchewan, I, I thought he looked like Bowley High Mitchell, and I know that sounds ridiculous to say, but we didn't really see much of that, you know, kind of scattered. Um, and I thought in the Ottawa game before he broke his leg, he threw 375 yards and, and showed signs of himself on a rainy day. Now he did throw five interceptions in that game, but he did throw for 275 yards, and they won the game. At the end of the day, are we going to remember the five interceptions? Probably not. We're going to remember the win. Um, so I, it's interesting to see what they're, how they're going to manage him. Will he play a half? Will he play a whole game? I mean, as the coach has kind of said, the game will dictate probably a lot, you know, on what, how they think about this. So yeah. And, and when you, interested. and when you say we hadn't seen a lot of Bo Levi Mitchell, I, I think you got to go, you got to include in that statement, not just. This year, I mean, it's been, he didn't play a whole lot last year when he was with Calgary and the year before he was playing, but he, he had lost his starting job. And I, I mean, I just, there were a lot of questions. I know the Ticats, he was their big signing and very, a lot of optimism that he could recapture the form that he had for so many years, but it's been a couple of years since we've really been able to see if Bo Levi Mitchell can be Bo Levi Mitchell again. Well, I mean, I thought it was just a one-year there, Scott, because I think he did. He was the starter out of the gate with the Calgary San Peters last year, and played two outstanding games against the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, in which you know one of them went right down to the last play of the game. So I, I thought, yeah, I mean, there's obviously questions of age, and he's had knee and shoulder, and you know, he's had injuries, right? I mean, especially at how he how started out of the gate going not without injuries. And then eventually they started to sort of catch up with you. And then they had young Jake Mayer that was, you know, improving himself and took the starting job away from him about, you know, about the one-third into the season. Um, but then when we saw him at the very end of the year when Calgary was eliminated from the playoffs and he came in there and started throwing the football around, that, that's what it kind of reminded me of. That's to be honest with you, when he came in that those last two games, last regular season finale, and I think it was the last quarter or so of the, of the playoff game that they the Calgary played last year, I, I thought I saw signs that, you know, this guy just didn't get it done. I mean, the injuries were, you know, his shoulder, you know, you're the quarterback, and, you know, you want him to have the same zip on the ball that we're used to him seeing. Now, I never really thought he was ever a strong-arm quarterback, but he just seems to know where to put the football, and when he gets in a rhythm, and that's what I saw last week, I yeah. saw him in a rhythm, and you could just see it, and, and there was just sort of an up-tempo to the offense, which... Uh, you know, the mess in the team seemed to just blossom from it. And, you know, the way he was spreading the ball around, again, just four or six, but just it did look sharp. And then Matthew Schultz come in, comes in there and, 
I mean, he just lights it up as well, too. Maybe they got something, you know, maybe the old, remember, if you go back in the day with the Argonauts, the old Connors, Holloway, and Joe Barnes. Yes, I remember. I remember. Uh, okay, so let me throw a let me throw a question at you that, uh, and I'll I'll preface this by saying, of course you want to win every game you play, and the Ty Cats are going to do their best to win every game they have because they still are trying to get home field advantage. But let me throw a question at you: the Ty Cats have to win both of their last two, and the Alouettes have to lose their last two. Now the Ty Cats play BC tomorrow. The Alouettes play Edmonton on Saturday, and then there's a bye week followed by Hamilton and Montreal. So if Hamilton wins tomorrow against BC and somehow Edmonton knocks off Montreal for their only fifth win of the year, that last game of the year becomes huge because it'll be for home field advantage. But what is more valuable? Is home field advantage more valuable than the fact that if you're playing a one-game winner-take-all for home field, that is going to be a brutal, rough physical game because there's a lot on the line followed by the next week wherever you play you're going to face the same team in a playoff game which is going to be another brutal physical home field or a game for all the marbles is home field worth enough that it's worth more than giving your guys a chance to rest oh absolutely I, I, I mean, again, you'll get varying opinions on this, and I'd love to know what Coach O would think about that. And, you know, we might get into that situation, but I, I'm all for it. I think there's something to be said about playing in front of your home your home crowd, and that has been proven at, at Tim Hortons Field. I, I, I don't really know how much over the years, you know, playing in Montreal has been an advantage for them. I'd have to do some, you know, further research, and not just this season, you know, maybe over a 10-year sample size. But, like, I think playing in front of your home crowd, and let's be honest here, too. Is there not a financial gain out of this? 100%. You know, there's this financial gain as well, too. I'm sure the organization would love to have uh, a home playoff date. Uh, and it, to me, it would continue the momentum that this team has put together. Can I, can I just tell you something that's really weird? Yeah, like, go. That, that, I, that, I, that I, 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 I said on my sportscast tonight. And this is just ridiculous that I that what I that I did this, but think about it. Where I'm going with this? If you kind of magically erase the Argonauts' four-game season sweep over the Tiger Cats, right now the Tiger Cats' regular season record would be eight and four. And if you take the two losses at the in that time, you know the Tiger Cats haven't lost a game since August the 17th. Now there's two Argos games in there, but if you take the Argos out, they haven't lost since August 17th. Yeah, and that and Bubba, that's part of the reason why I asked that question. And again, I mean, I get why home field matters. It does. I'm not suggesting for a second it doesn't matter. Yeah. But to get it, you may, and then to get to play the Argos in the Eastern Final, you may have to play two straight weeks of just brutal games against Montreal, and then go right. in to play a rested Al, uh, a rested Argos team. And I just, I, I wonder, I wonder if. If you had the choice and nobody could know what your answer was and you're the coaching staff, would you rather rest some guys and take your chances on the road or go real hard but get the home field advantage? I don't know what the answer is. No, I, I think, I, to me, the answer is simple. I think you, got, you want to be at home. You want your players sleeping in their own bed, in their own sort of uh, 
you know, routine, practicing at your home building, no travel to worry about. And I know sometimes when you travel, it's kind of fun because it gives you that sort of us against the world mentality. Not this time of year. But, you know, not I, this time I, of year. I, not this time of the year. I think you want to be in, and especially with the momentum. And, they, you know, that's why I brought up those, those, you know, those stats. There's a certain momentum going. And if you dip and you don't play everyone in that one final regular season finale and kind of just accept, yeah, we'll go on the road. I, I think it takes away. I, I think you want to be rolling right now. We've talked about this, you know, year after year after year, and it's been, it was actually brought up by Bo Levi Mitchell, is the fact that he, as a Calgary member of the Calgary Stampeders, who, let's be honest, over his 10 years there, it was a level of excellence that we have not seen before. He's the winningest quarterback of all time over his 10-year period at the, in Calgary. Yep. yep. His, team, his team, with great regular season records, got beat in the Great Cup by two, not one, but two 8-8 eight eight teams. Yeah, it's uh, it's the it's the it's the unusualness uh, of the CFL. There's no question about that one. We'll we'll see. It's you know, unfortunately for the Ticats, uh, they had their chances earlier in the year to steal a couple of wins in games they should have won, which would have made right. this whole thing moot, and we wouldn't even be talking about this because they'd already have home field basically locked up. But that's not the situation. All right, got uh, a couple more minutes here. Mark Shapiro, Blue Jays president today, had his press conference about a week after Ross Atkins had his. And I got to tell you, and I'm going only by talking to a few people and reading stuff online and social media, feeling social media is not always, it's in fact rarely a good place to get a real measure of anything because I get that it's just where people go to rage. But I just, my goodness, I, I don't remember maybe John Ferguson Jr., um, although social media wasn't then what it is now, I can't remember a fan base being as absolutely disenchanted with the management of a team in Toronto that they are, or seem to be anyway, with Atkins and Shapiro right now. It, it was a painful season. It's hard to believe that you, your team went to the playoffs. Now, mind you, it was the sixth you know, playoff position being the third wildcard position. The team won 89 games. But within that regular season of 162, there were way too many roller coasters, in my opinion. And, on, and, and when, you, when you address that with sort of the, the runners in scoring position, men left on base, um, mental errors, their inability to be fundamentally sound running the bases all season long, it was a concern. Now, we all got hyped up and they actually made the playoffs, and we were all happy to see that. But really... Who, who they really were was exposed by the Minnesota Twins. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think there was definitely a level of disappointment and disenchantment for the fans. And Ross Atkins did nothing to help us there, right? His, his sort of, I think, lack of accountability and even going as far as to kind of blame the manager on some of the, the, the things that went wrong with this team over the year were, 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 I thought, inexcusable. Now, with that said... I can but appreciate, as a president, what Mark Shapiro did today. I thought he was much more accountable, much more ready to, to you know, spread the blame. Um, I thought I, I thought he came off much better today and gave me a much better feeling that, you know, they're not just sitting on their laurels. 
No, I, well, I, look, he, you're right that he came across much better than uh, Ross Atkins, although uh, he could have stood up on the stage and turned around and mooned the media, and it would have been coming across better than Ross Atkins. His press conference was a disaster. It was a disaster. I, I just can't believe... That I, I was waiting for the question, and I like I'm not trying to dump on the media that was there. That you know, the, you, it's not an easy thing to be doing that job, and and you got to ask the questions, and you only get a few. And but the one thing I really wanted to hear was when Mark Shapiro was talking about, you know, Ross Atkins has done a really good job. Look at the body of work; he's done a really good job. I wanted someone to say, "Hold on, you're right. They got in the playoffs, but squeaked in with a." team that should have been better in the sixth playoff spot. They've won zero playoff games, zero Mm -hmm. playoff series. How is that deemed successful with a team with the, with the payroll that it has, with the crowd support that it has, how is that possibly deemed to be successful? That to me is a failure, not a success. And the guys that you traded away are all tearing it up in the playoffs now. Yeah. Yeah. That's hard, right? Like, I mean, I, I, I'll look at this, and this is where I kind of give them a little bit of break. And, yes, it's so easy to, to look at what one player is doing compared to what Adam Barso did or whatever. But you can't just use it on a, on a half-year sample size or a one-year sample size, right? It's great. Remember, those players are playing on great teams, right? The Blue Jays clearly were not a great team, even though, you know, they, they started off the year with this next-level sort of, you know, mantra. Um I think I think that's an easy way out to look at what a, a you know this is this is this, maybe it might take a career to really to see what that truth is crazy all about. But with that said, good trades and good acquisitions were made, right? Like the pitching staff is clearly the, was the best in the American League this year. Um, there were some you know there was clearly some good drafting. I thought the bullpen was exceptional this year. It just didn't all come together. It, yeah, reason. no, it did. Uh, as I say, zero playoff, forget series wins, zero playoff wins of games. To me, that's uh, it's hard to in any way define that as success. Anyway, listen. But, we're, but, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, though, whether you, you won a couple or lost, like you, you still lost, right? Yep, yep. I mean, and this is where I agree with managers and general managers and, and coaches, and I know we heard this with the Leafs, there's only one team that's happy at the end of the year. That's true. And I, and I don't know, we would still, like, had they gone, you know, I don't know, three games and it, it went to a third game against Minnesota and we lost, we'd still feel sour. We felt sour about what happened, you know, giving up an 8-1 lead, which, you know, you know, at some point too, Scott. I got to say this, and and I know Shapiro would never say this. This would be asinine for uh, a president to say. But at some point, the players have to take responsibility too. And this is what really bothered me a little bit, is because I thought I'm not saying the players weren't weren't accountable, but they made some. I I mean, the Vladimir Guerrero thing, obviously, at the end of the year, what a what a, we'll be seeing that for years, but. At times, they just like you can't keep batting and like hits in scoring position. Like, I don't know. Like, who do, you can't? Can you blame a manager for that? Yeah. No. Well, there's look. There's we got to run. There's plenty of blame all around for everything. Um, we'll be talking about this one. We got to run now. But uh, Bubba O'Neill, you can catch him on CHH. You can catch him tomorrow here on 900 CHML with Ticats Radio Network Audio Network uh, pregame at six o'clock. Bubba, thanks for doing this.
Oski Wee Wee. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. A couple nights ago, my wife and I uh, sat down. We had heard that this new documentary was out about Mr. Dress Up, and both of us fall into the age group that Mr. Dress Up mattered and meant something. And so we sat down and watched it. It was on Amazon Prime. And I got to tell you, I don't know what my expectations were watching a documentary about a kid's show, but they were so far exceeded. It was a spectacular documentary a great look back and i actually learned a lot about not just mr dress up ernie coombs but about the whole children's show tv era of the time and his connection with mr rogers that i didn't know a whole lot about the director of this movie it's called mr dress up by the way the magic of make-believe the director is a guy named rob mccallum who joins us now rob how are you Ah, doing well and it's it's so delightful to hear from folks like yourself who have discovered the film and to hear that it went beyond their expectations, you know, we don't really, you know, try to paint a big picture of what to expect. So it's a nice surprise when people are coming away and, and really enjoying their time with the film. Well, uh, I, I don't know if she'll be happy or not that I'm going to mention this, but you had my wife sobbing at more than one point during this thing. I don't I, I suppose that's a good thing. That's a good thing. If you're getting if you're touching people's emotions, I mean, kids shows probably don't you want not everyone crying all the time. But uh, it was... well, well, to quote the film, why are all these people crying? I don't understand it. <laughs> yeah, that was it. Listen, it. here's the thing. I, I, I think I, I'm trying to think of how many generations of canadians this matter to i i mean look it's nothing about the film i don't know that if you are 20 years old right now that this film is going to resonate with you but there's got to be two generations maybe more of canadians oh, that will get we, this. we we pegged it at five right because you've got okay. the first kids and this in the 60s that watch it but those parents of those kids you know appreciate it too so by the time you get into the reruns and syndication that extend into 2004 area you've probably got four maybe five generations of canadians but you're right anybody under 30 typically doesn't know who mr dressup is doesn't know what a tickle trunk is don't know who casey and finnegan are uh but i i will say it, it does still work i showed my kids and that's what spurred the whole journey to begin with and they love everything that's out there today and they were hooked to this my friend is a teacher and they do soft starts every day and he showed them the trailer and they were just blown away that this was, you know, the entertainment we had in our day. And then they became interested because they realized this is Canadian pop culture and they want to watch the documentary now as a result. So I think even if you didn't grow up with it and hey, I've got tons of friends in America, too, that are like, this is awesome. And I had no idea what this is. And I feel closer to your Mr. Dress Up than I did to our Mr. Rogers. <laughs> so I think you'll find an entry point. I'm a little surprised, though, to hear that you say your kids were interested. Not, I mean, maybe your kids are are unique, but this show, if you look at what kids TV is today, Mr. Dress Up, Mr. Rogers, same, so slow paced, so, uh, I don't want to say lethargic, um, that's not the right word, but it's it's not the same thing. It is, it is not the hyperactive TV that's on today. And so I'm kind of surprised in some sense that kids who are used to and have been brought up and weaned on today's TV could still get something out of it. Be delighted, be surprised, be all these things, because there's still room for a show that's in the moment. It's not slow. It's in the moment. It's patient. It's deliberate. That's a better word. Patient. That's a good word. And I mean, frankly, it's basically the seeds of everything we see on YouTube, right? Like how many 
times on YouTube have you found, you know, a craft or an art project that you see a blank canvas and at the end of it, you see the finished thing. Sometimes they use time lapse, of course, sometimes they don't. But it's also like the cooking show uh, from the beginning because you see every process from every step. Mr. Dress Up doesn't skip a beat. And even when there's a mistake during crafts or drawing, it gets worked into the final product. So kids... It almost works in reverse. It creates a sort of tension where they're waiting for the payoff. They don't get bored. And all of these segments are only about five minutes long. It's just that there's six of them for a half hour show that has no commercials. So just as they kind of get to the five minute mark and they're starting to get antsy, boom, they're into the next segment. And we did a whole kind of case study with the kindergarten class. And you see the results of it in the film as well. And they were hooked, too. How many hundreds of hours of Mr. Dress Up did you watch to pull this together? Oh, man, many hundreds of hours. And, and not just me. I've got to give a full credit to our research team and our editors. Because it's not just watching it and saying, oh, yeah, there might be something good here. It's watching it and then finding the interviews and everything that we have cut together. Then going back and re-watching it to find all the examples that are mentioned and and putting it all together and finding those those truly magical moments. Because... Unlike shows like Friends or Seinfeld or The Office where you're like, or The Simpsons were like, oh, you remember that episode when this happened? It doesn't really exist for a kid's show that is supposed to just kind of be a part of everybody's daily experience. You're not supposed to have a kind of highlight episode with, with Mr. Dress Up. So finding those moments that really did stand out and were special was difficult because there were so many that could have fit that bill. There wasn't one like, you know, remember that one where Casey ran away? That didn't really happen in that show. Yeah. Thankfully, yeah. it didn't need to either. Well, I've, I've never made a documentary film. I'm not a documentary filmmaker, although every time I see one that's been made, I was just at a, at a premiere for Sean Menard, a Hamilton guy, filmmaker who just oh, did one on the- 299 Queen Street West. That's right. Just was at the Sean's premiere of awesome. Thompson Hall. He's coming on the show in a couple of weeks but before his show comes to Hamilton. But one of the things that I thought at the time, I'll jump the queue and ask you this first. When you're watching hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of this, how do you pick what to use? Because you could you literally know. almost use anything. You just know. there There's something in you that just pulls at the clips that you see and you're like, oh, this is important. Sometimes you understand it. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes it's just the organic process of making one of these films. I always go into it only kind of knowing 50% of what I hope and then let it take its own energy which comes from what you discover and the other people involved. And then just a little bit of an X factor. You just kind of know what meets the mark and you, you, you know, funnel it down and whittle away and you eventually end up with, you know, the core, the core, the cream of the crop. And if, if you've missed something, you'll have seen it and you know where to go back and get it. But you kind of just know what, what you need to grab, what, what stands out. One of the, threads one of the storylines that's in this um that and i knew the germ of this but i didn't really know the story so i'm hoping you can take 30 seconds or a minute because i don't know that people realize how closely tied mr rogers and mr dress up were ernie coombs and uh fred rogers i i think people may know there was a connection but not how tight it was you know super tight and of course i'm not gonna spoil every little bit that's in the film but just know that they were not competing for ratings like some might think happens in the television space. Uh, they were best friends. They had a shared philosophy. They met in the mid to late 50s and they just had a similar outlook for what TV could be and the role of children and the kind of content and entertainment and educational principles that should be a part of it. 
And when Fred Rogers got a call from Dr. Frederick Rainsbury, who was in charge of the kids department at CBC, which was the first kids department in North America, uh, Rainsbury said to Fred Rogers, I want you to come up because you've got a gift. You understand this. And Fred Rogers turned around and said, Ernie, I want you to come with me. Um, for there's a bunch of reasons, but specifically, he knew who he was picking, and he was very deliberate about his choices. Fred Rogers didn't do anything on a whim; he was very calculating. And one of the interesting things is in Canada, he develops Mister Rogers, which eventually becomes Mister Rogers' Neighborhood. But it's the first time he goes in front of the camera. He did not want to be a host; he was happy being a producer, happy being a writer. But Rainsbury said, "No, you've got to be out there because you create a connection." And so if he's taking this leap of faith, he wants somebody at his side to make sure that he's not going to falter, somebody that can help him through this whole thing. And he picks Ernie Coombs. Now, Fred Rogers, of course, you know, goes to Pittsburgh and we get Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. But Ernie Coombs stays behind and they and they remain friends forever. I mean, Fred Rogers was the best man at Ernie's wedding. I mean, how cool would that wedding be, right? Like there's Mr. Rogers <laughs> and Mr. Dress up there. That's a grand celebration. I, I, I don't care how you cut it or paint it. That's a great night. Yeah, no, there would be people willing to pay a lot of money for tickets to that one these days. And think about that car ride, Scott. Like that, that 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 ride from Pittsburgh to Toronto that they must have taken to kind of scout things out. What would it have been like to be a fly on the wall in that car? As Mr. Rogers and Mr. Dressup, you know, are chatting for four, five, six hours on the road. Mm. I think about that often. The, the weird little things that pop in your head as you research well, the this ideas, stuff. And, yeah, the ideas yeah. that would have come from that. So yesterday I was actually filling in on a different show uh, here on the station. And one of the things we did, we had just touched on the movie that I had seen. Um, and we were taking calls and just simply asking people, what's your, what's the kids show that, that resonates with you? What's the one that you remember? And we got everything. We had tons of people calling in, by the way. I was shocked how many people decided to to call in and, and text in. And we had everything from Magic School Bus to Romper Room to Polka Dot Door to Electric Company to everything. But with you now having watched all these hours and hours and hours, what works? What what is the what is the secret sauce for a kid show that is going to work? Because there's some that are great and there's some that really aren't. It's honestly about playtime. And that's why Mr. Dress Up works, right? It's a show where you get to meet your friends in a safe space. There's a loving adult there. It's not about authority. It's about structure. And it's kind of the ultimate childhood fantasy, right? An adult who has all the time in the world, there's no distractions to just play with you, whether that's crafts or drawing or dressing up or kind of learning about worms in the backyard. That adult is there for you dependably every day at the same time. And it, there's no stakes in the show that you have to worry about. Problem solving isn't a means to resolve anxiety like it is with so many shows today. It's like, we better, you know, save the bridge or Adventure Bay is going to blow up. And oh, my God, <laughs> you know, like teamwork, you know, figuring that out, you know, working together. There's themes and all that that are all great things. And, and hey, I love Paw Patrol. My kids love it. But I get anxiety thinking about that. And what does, you know, a two to four year old think when they're watching that? Mr. Dressup wasn't about anxiety. He was like, well, what do you want to do today? Well, let's let's just start drawing. And underneath that creative exploration of every episode, it was just, you know, subtle themes like, oh, well, let's talk about loud noises. Let's draw a truck because a truck can make loud noises. And then, oh, here's our neighbor and, and they're singing. That's a different kind of loud noise. Right. So it's just it's not about the teaching. It's about playtime, first and foremost. And when you know how to play you know, I always joke, you know, what's the best time of day? Playtime. Because then nothing, everything else fades away. You have a busy, hectic schedule. 
where's your playtime coming in? Because once you figure that out, your day is going to be fine. And once you get to that point, it, it's all going to be good. So the shows that work are the ones that reinforce play, that reinforce imagination, and don't play off anxiety to create stakes to get somebody to watch to the end of the episode. I know that, and I, again, I don't want to do any spoilers here. I don't think this is a spoiler. There, there are a scene or two in later years where young adults run into Mr. Rogers and the re- response is, you know, predictably excited and cheering and everything else. And I, you know, I, I got thinking whether that could even work now. And I'll tell you why, because I was, I, before talking to you today, I was looking at a story that was written online about the documentary and the story was fine. There was nothing controversial or anything in it, but you go to the comments afterwards and it doesn't take long for there to be a fight about politics. Somehow, somehow this turned into a political thing about Mr. Dress Up. And I wonder if even Mr. Dress Up as non-political as all the words you've used could be, could you do a show like this today and it not end up somehow getting dragged down into political fights because of something you said or a theme you explored or something else on one of these shows? It's it's very tough because we're so quick to create boundaries, sometimes out of respect, sometimes out of necessity. But when you create boundaries and dividing lines, you all of a sudden divide people and they're going to speak on each side or much more of that. Right. So it's a very dangerous situation. People ask, you know, how would you pitch the show today? Would it ever get on the network? No, it probably wouldn't. You couldn't pitch a middle aged man who has puppets that live in a treehouse in the backyard and draws all day. And, you know, sometimes teenage girls come over and play. It sounds wrong on paper, but when you spend 10 seconds with the show, you see just how genuine and innocent it is. And that's the problem. Everybody wants to overthink these things. They had these principles in mind when they, when they created the show to begin with, and they knew that those guiding principles would work. And yeah, there would be some course corrections along the way, but the important thing was to get out there and do it. And they had the right people in charge. They had a brilliant team of, of, you know, women behind the scenes, both as writers, directors, and producers guiding this and making sure it was the right kind of show and in the right spirit. So I think some of the key is sometimes to just do it, make some course corrections, but keep going. And again, listen to that inner child and the true North star and let it just pull you through doing the right thing, not to please a mandate, not to please a certain group of people or the political party in power, just to do it because it's the right human thing to do. It doesn't take much to figure out what that is. I know we could talk about it forever. Like it is a difficult thing, but you kind of know inherently what's good and what's right without having to think about or guess it. You, somebody falls down, you help them up. You don't question them, okay, where have they been? Should I touch them? What are their beliefs? If they're hurt, you help them, right? Like yeah, brilliantly it's put. just an instinctual response. And I think that's where Mr. Dress Up comes from. And that's why it worked then. And when you try to take the instinct out of it, you miss the point. Uh, we got to run just before I let you go. Where do you know, where is the original tickle trunk today? Well, there are many tickle trunks out there, but the one that I can point to, the one that Mr. Dress Up had and created himself is actually in England with his son who lives over there Ah. in the documentary film, of course. But it's in good hands uh, and a Canadian artifact shall always be guarded uh, with kindness and love that it deserves. Uh, That is Rob McCallum. He is the writer and director of Mr. Dress Up, The Magic of Make Believe. I cannot encourage you firmly enough or enthusiastically enough to, uh, if you have Amazon prime to take an evening and watch it, it's, it's uh, if you are of that air, if you're of that uh, time that you remember Mr. Dress up, you absolutely 
want to take an hour and a half. I think it was an hour and a half. Anyway, whatever time it is, it was all good. It passed quickly uh, to watch it. Rob, thanks for doing this. Hey, thanks for having me on. And don't forget to get that tickle trunk out to find a costume and have some fun today. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.